Welcome to episode 224 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government. We've got a great lineup uh, today. Uh, uh, we're going to do our interview with Duncan Hollis, who teaches law at Temple Law School uh, uh, and knows a lot about international and cyber law uh, because he was formerly at the Department of State and Steptoe and Johnson. Duncan, do you actually have to work at Steptoe and Johnson to do international cyber law? I mean, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know about causation, but there's certainly correlation, right, between uh, folks that spend time at Steptoe and, and then uh, end up in this field. I, I agree. Yeah. All right. Uh, and if you if you didn't start at Steptoe, like Brian Egan didn't, you have to come back to Steptoe. Right? Um, all right. Uh, we've also got Maury Schenk, uh, who was formerly the managing partner at our London office uh, and uh, uh, now an advisor on European technology and cybersecurity issues. Maury, welcome. Welcome. Good to be here, Stuart. Okay. And uh, to talk about uh, the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, we've got Chris Conti, who was formerly with the SEC's Division of Enforcement, now a partner in our Washington office. Uh, Chris, welcome. Great. Glad to be here. And uh, Jamil Jaffer, uh, well known to our audience uh, as the founder of the National Security Institute and a professor at George Mason University. Jamil, great to have you. Thanks for being here. Uh, and um, uh, making a guest appearance, uh, a summer associate from Steptoe's Washington office, Laura Hillsman, who's going to take on the first topic of the uh, uh, podcast. Uh, but first, I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS and the host of uh, today's program. Uh, I should note before I jump in uh, uh, to the news uh, roundup that uh, in a new experiment, I – tweeted out all of the um, stories that I thought we'd cover uh, today uh, at the end of last week to see uh, what kind of interest there was. Uh, and I'll probably do that again in the future a few times. Uh, maybe I'll put it on Facebook and LinkedIn as well. Um, and if you've got comments, if you think these stories, a particular story is really important or stupid or there's something that you'd like us to talk about, uh, just uh, respond on social media and we'll try to fold it into the uh, discussion as we go forward. Uh, why don't we uh, jump right in uh, uh, to the uh, new California privacy law, uh, very extensive, and you'd think it was a big step forward, a big victory for privacy campaigners, but that may not be quite uh, uh, true. Uh, Laura, how did this come about? So last Thursday on June 28th, California passed a new privacy law. And this was actually passed in exchange for getting rid of a ballot initiative presented by California citizens that was trying to improve California's privacy measures. So this law gives Californians the right to know what data is collected and who's it, who it's shared with. And then they can opt out or ask for some information to be deleted. There are also um, some remedies in the event of a data breach, so they could sue for that. However, um, this is noteworthy predominantly because it's one of the first privacy protection laws we've been seeing. Uh, GDPR, as many of you may be aware, came out somewhat recently, and that's a huge privacy protection law over in Europe. However, in the United States, we've tended to focus more on uh, data breach protection. So this is really noteworthy in that case. So this case. is, in, in some respects, 
this is just California uh, saying me too to GDPR. In a lot of ways, that's what the the, the law does. Uh, it takes GDPR, translates it into left coast language and adopts it. Yeah, that's um, a good way of characterizing it. However, one important thing to note with this as well is that because the California legislature passed this, instead of it being the ballot measure, this will be open for amendment before it takes effect in 2020. So there's a lot of wiggle room to see exactly how robust these privacy measures are going to become. Well, that's what I was hinting at with the intro. I, I, my sense is this was adopted by the legislature precisely to head off the initiative uh, so that they could change it before 2020 if they uh, were lobbied hard enough by Silicon Valley, um, which they couldn't do with an initiative, uh, uh, but they can do with legislation of their own. So uh, I'm not sure we're done fighting about what California's privacy law should be. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. We'll have to see um, even looking at the differences between the ballot initiative and the law that was passed, there are already some broadening out. So it'll be interesting to see what the legislature does before it comes into effect. All right. Well, we will cover it for sure. Thanks, Laura Hillsman. Uh, uh, did a great job. Fell right on that grenade. Uh, um, speaking of grenades, uh, the SEC is rolling them out for people who have uh, traded uh, in advance of a, or uh, in the wake of a uh, cyber breach, but before it's been announced. Uh, uh, this is uh, the second insider trading uh, uh, conviction they've gotten, isn't it? Um, well, it's the second one that they've uh, brought in, and it they're doing it with the U.S. Attorney's Office uh, in the Northern District of Atlanta. So the the consequences here are even more significant given the criminal footprint that um, exists in the in the two cases they brought so far. Um, I was going to start out by mentioning that you know back in November there was a special committee that took a look at four senior executives and concluded that those four senior executives had not engaged in insider trading for uh, a number of reasons, both that they didn't have knowledge, they had complied with company I policies and procedures, uh, and that the trades comported with company policy. So the first case that was brought was, was brought back in March of 2018, where there was an individual who was a former chief uh, information officer who exercised all of his vested options after coming into possession of information that uh, he was able to deduce, from which he was able to deduce, that uh, Equifax had been breached and not some uh, uh, customer that they had sort of set up. I'm, as guessing, a, I'm guessing he deduced that his <laughs> time at the company was really short. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, he uh, for whatever his thought process was, he, uh, he exercised all of his vested options and netted proceeds of about a million dollars, which, because it was a losses avoided case, ended up being 117000 uh, But with last week's action, uh, it involved a software engineer, again, both charged criminally and uh, by the SEC. And there again, um, the allegations were that he had received um, um, confidential information while creating a website for the consumers uh, that were uh, impacted by the data breach. Again, this individual was able, who was working on the website was able to figure out that, in fact, the unnamed potential client was, in fact, Equifax. So, I, you know, to, to 
give him, you know, some credit here. They didn't tell him that. Correct. He figured it out. And I wouldn't be surprised if he said, well, if you're not going to tell me, it's not inside information. I just figured this out from the internals of the assignment. Now, in fact, that's still insider trading because they wouldn't have that information if he hadn't been working there. But uh, uh, I can see why he might have been uh, fallen prey to the illusion that this wasn't insider trading. Yeah, he, you know, he's... He has settled with the SEC, um, uh, but is uh, going to be litigating the case uh, with the criminal authorities. Uh, perhaps the arguments uh, do very much involve his criminal intent and awareness. Um, so here's, here's, here's what I, I think he really should go to jail for. Uh, that website itself was hackable. That the website you were supposed to go to to say, have I been hacked and what do I do to protect my identity? Please put your information in here and we'll tell you. And it was, it was subject to cross-site scripting. Uh, and if he designed that website, uh, he probably was responsible for half of the damage in reputation that Equifax mm. suffered, uh, uh, plus all the harms that occurred to people who entered their data yeah. um, if there were any I don't know if the site was actually hacked or just the, the everybody discovered the flaw um, uh, so uh, he doesn't he doesn't look so good if, if you realize just how bad his code was right well it's also the case that in terms of how he went about doing his trading um, you know these are these are the trades that he engaged in are the kinds of things that typically bring uh, everybody out of the woodwork, oh, yeah, right? You, you, so you, he you, did you, options. You, you, options. They were on out of own the, company's stock. You know, uh, duh. Options <laughs> out of the money. Two week expiration. He traded in his wife's account, where he could have done it in his own account with uh, with money that was available. Um, okay, contrary so I, to he, company his, policy, his argument that there was no criminal intent <laughs> is going to be a tough one. Right? It's going to it's going to be tough. Uh, you know, he made seventy five thousand um, dollars for on a two thousand dollar investment. Um, look, in terms of sort of lessons, um, look, the SEC has been out there for a long time. It issued guidance earlier this yep. year to tell public companies and individuals you got to put controls in place around uh, the potential for insider trading. you got to restrict trading if um, if you're uh, aware uh, of material breaches. And so, you know, this is the kind of thing that we'll continue to see. Uh, but the onus is on companies to, to put into place what they need to do to prevent this from happening as best they can. So it would have been better off to tell him and then to tell him, that this is, that by the way, this is inside information and you absolutely have to tra treat it I think that's uh, right. uh, as such. Okay. Um, lots of action on uh, with between the president and China, uh, particularly ZTE, um, uh, but also Chinese uh, in uh, the policy on uh, Chinese investments. Maury, um, what happened last week? Well, like the president did on North Korea, or, or they're starting to be signs that, like on North Korea, beyond the trade war bluster, there are some more traditional nuanced solutions being pursued. The ZTE, which is a big Chinese equipment manufacturer, that was, per, well, people were saying maybe they'd be put out of business by Commerce Department sanctions not allowing them to buy from U.S. suppliers, uh, was offered relief by the president and the Senate came back and uh, tried to overturn that relief and the, the president says no uh, that's that's not right let us let us be flexible 
So that's um, the that's a, so, that was a statement of administrative policy, which is uh, administration policy, which is this the standard expression before a bill is adopted of what the position of the administration is on provisions. What I thought was interesting is he 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 used the language we the president objects strongly. I didn't see a veto message or even a, 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 the president's advisors will recommend a veto. There's none of that in the context of uh, a, a bill that is almost never vetoed, uh, um, which means that the, this is a strong objection, but maybe not a nuclear one. No, I think that's right. I mean, two reasons for that. As you say, the Defense Authorization Act is not something the president would veto lightly because there's a lot hanging on it. And second, I think Trump is playing a game of shifting positions, which is clearly his negotiating strategy. It may be more important to him to get the position out there than actually make this particular position fit. Okay, so he may he may be um, saying to the Chinese, look, I'm fighting uh, to preserve this deal, but if I can't preserve the deal, I can't preserve the deal. Uh, um, and uh, at the same time, he has said, interestingly, it's in the same bill, the National Defense Authorization Act, that he's going to wait for the investment review uh, uh, changes that Congress is making and not try to make them as a matter of uh, executive order. Yeah, that was the other big development that uh, Stephen Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, seems to have won the battle of using reformed CFIUS process to deal with Chinese investment rather than sanctions along the lines that have been used for uh, imports. And, again, suggests um, some flexibility in in the U.S. position. Yep. Um, So David Tell, uh, responding to my tweet of this issue, said... uh, uh, what does this mean more broadly? Uh, uh, for example, uh, for Kaspersky, is there is there a broader issue here, and do we have a hint about how it's going to be addressed? Well, you know, predictability is not this administration's strong suit. Um, but uh, it does, I mean, the administration seems to be developing the track record of taking um, big, aggressive positions and then doing a deal. Could that happen to Kaspersky? You know, I don't know. I mean, the Russian um, situation is obviously caught up in uh, a lot of tough political issues, notably Mueller's investigation. And Kaspersky is, you know, there was a lot of um, damaging evidence there. So I don't think it's as like, I mean, there was damaging evidence against DTE as well. But I don't think a deal on Kaspersky is as likely as a deal on DTE. Uh, including because Kaspersky is a much smaller company. I mean, Russia doesn't care about Kaspersky like China cares about CTE. Fair enough. Okay, uh, we've got a whole bunch of stories for our lightning round. Uh, Jamil, um, the USA Freedom Act was designed to take a bunch of metadata out of the hands of the National Security Agency and leave it with the uh, um, uh, the phone companies that collect metadata about uh, our calls. Uh, uh, and now it looks as though that's not uh, working out quite as well as everyone had thought. Well, I think we always knew that there were going to be challenges um, in, uh, in in getting the records back and forth from the providers, um, how long they'd store them for and how we got them and, and what we'd do with them once we had them. 
Uh, what it looks like here is that um, uh, NSA on its own identified some technical irregularities, the data they were receiving from companies. They were authorized to get the data. They got it. They looked at it. It didn't look right. Uh, they determined that um, apparently they got some records they weren't supposed to get. Uh, they then consulted uh, with the Department of Justice. The Office of Director of National Intelligence decided um, they couldn't figure out how to segregate the, the, the records they weren't supposed to get from the records they were supposed to get. And as a result, uh, they decided uh, in an amazing turn to delete all of the records. So, you know, this just goes to show uh, they had gotten some valid data. They got some invalid data because they couldn't segregate it. They threw it all away. Uh, they apparently have fixed the problem um, and uh, and won't get the the uh, the unauthorized data going forward. Doesn't change the fact though that what was designed to be a uh, terrorist threat early warning system just had a bunch of data dumped out the back door uh, because this uh, having the phone company keep the records and get it over to NSA in the right fashion just hasn't worked out properly. Yeah, so it's not it's not as though they dumped every uh, piece of data uh, available to be searched. Uh, these are the results of them asking for finding, say, 30 or 40, which is what the, these searches ran in the past, 30 or 40 suspicious numbers, asking who called that number, and then say, well, who called the people who called that number? Uh, and uh, what they got was data about who called that number that might have been over-inclusive. And then, of course, they asked for data about who who called the people who called that uh, number and got a lot of over-inclusive data, but it's still the results of 30 or 40 searches a year, right? Well, I mean, it's hard to know, right? For all we know, the number has gone up or gone down. We just don't know what, what the number of searches is. Uh, at least it wasn't disclosed in, in, in this press release. But I think what we can say is back in the era when NSA held the data and only pulled the thread itself, it would only get the data it was looking for because it would just pull the thread get the numbers uh, that were connected to the number it sought, and that was it. Um, yes, they maintained the data, but they weren't looking at it in that sense. Um, here now, you go to the providers, the providers do what they're going to do, and if there's a problem, they dump a whole bunch more data in NSA's hands, and now it's looking at data that it shouldn't have. So this is a good example of a scenario where, you know, Congress takes action to protect privacy, may have actually made things worse for privacy when it came to this particular scenario. Luckily, though, they have solved the problem. Uh, NSA caught it itself. They did the right thing told the Justice Department, told the court, um, have gotten rid of the data and are now collecting in, in a proper way and working with the providers in a way that doesn't get them this over-collection of data. So yep. a good story, I think, net-net for government oversight, uh, but a good example of where sometimes privacy laws can get you, in, get you into more privacy trouble than you might have thought initially. Yeah, my guess is the people who created this problem in Congress will rush to blame NSA for it. Um, uh, Undoubtedly. <laughs> yes. Okay. Um, well, reality has won, and reality winner has uh, taken what looks like a pretty good plea deal, uh, 63 months in jail for releasing uh, highly classified uh, document. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure, you know, she's kind of, kind of a sad sack. Uh, uh, and this is probably about right. Uh, uh, but it sounds like a pretty good deal compared to some of the other sentences that people have gotten for uh, uh, releasing classified information. Um, speaking of sad uh, sacks, um, there's a story out about um, how much sharing has gone on over the last two years of uh, uh, mal uh, malware and other signature uh, information um, in the two years since the uh, uh, Cybersecurity Information Sharing Act was 
passed with a bunch of liability incentives to encourage uh, sharing. It turns out that there are only six private sector entities that are sharing that kind of information on a regular basis uh, uh, with the government through DHS. Uh, and uh, that's being covered as a, a pretty poor showing considering how much effort there was to encourage um, a private sector sharing. Uh, I don't know, Jamil, um, how do you see that? Well, so, you know, um, obviously the CISA bill uh, is a derivative bill that was passed uh, in 2015. Uh, we had originally done this original bill called CISPA in the House Intelligence Committee. Um, some of the differences between the two bills I think that may be relevant to why people aren't sharing are uh, the more limited a regulatory posture in CISPA uh, that was eliminated here. Here, uh, you can still regulate based on this data in a, in a large sense. You can regulate whole industries. You can't regulate individual entities, but you can regulate whole industries. That raises concerns with, with uh, companies who don't necessarily want to share. Um, the, uh, the sharing is required to be with DHS. Uh, you can't share with anybody else in the first instance. It's true that DHS has to push it out. There are companies, as we know, who have had, who have had concerns about about doing that. Um, there are a variety of other provisions in here. Uh, I've got a whole law review article on it that if anybody wants to look at, we can we can get out to folks that that's just why you might think this law was a good step in the right direction, but could have done you could have done more with. And there's actually legislation uh, in the House, the Small Business Committee, uh, that looks to solve some of these problems, at least for small businesses. So, you know, more to be done there. But then there's a larger issue, obviously. You know, uh, I think that we heard Jeanette Manfred, the uh, Assistant Secretary uh, for cyber at uh, DHS talking about she understands some of the challenges that AIS, the automated indicator sharing system, has. Uh, they're working to fix those. They've got a good team on cyber at DHS now with Kirsten Nielsen at the top, Chris Krebs as the undersecretary, Jeanette Manfred there as the secretary. So I think they're committed to trying to address some of these issues, but, you know, it is a challenge. And so it's not surprising uh, that in the, on the sort of input end, companies aren't, aren't ready to share as much as they might. Uh, on the flip side, you also see... Um, uh, you know, uh, the information coming out of DHS, uh, out of AIS, as being not as useful as people might hope. The same was true of the DIB pilot, so it's not like it's just a DHS-only problem. Um, but that being said, you've really got to figure out how to get companies uh, incentivized to share. There are a lot of ways we can think about to do that. Um, but there are a lot of companies today that want to share both with one another and the government. Um, I have an organized cybersecurity company that does some work in that space. And so, um, you know, I think there are opportunities out there. It's just really a matter of, one, gave the legal structure in place, but then also gave the right incentives in place to encourage people to do this and clear out the roadblocks. And we're, we've gotten three-quarters of the way there. There's still another 25% to go, and so we'll see what happens going forward. So my, my guess my guess is we only have half the story here. Uh, uh, CISA encouraged sharing. It didn't specifically encourage sharing with the government, uh, uh, or at least it didn't. It, it, its liability protections weren't limited to government sharing. I'm willing to bet that there's a lot more sharing going on in the private sector, private sector to private sector. And the reason they don't share with the government is they don't know what will happen and they don't know how much value they're going to get out of it. So uh, they're being conservative, which is certainly my experience with GCs of big companies that have that data. You know, Stuart, you're exactly right. I think that CISA has incentivized and actually has promoted a lot more sharing in industry. Part of the challenge that we've always had with government is government really explained to industry why there should be value in this. And, and the real trade for value here is for industry to understand and believe that the government will take the information they're given, they'll use it to go out in a foreign space, identify threats, identify new threats they didn't know about before, and then share that back to industry. And government has been talking more recently about doing that, but actually effectuating that, making that real, hasn't happened. And so I really think in part the onus is on, is on the government to really say, okay, 
we're ready to share with you some of the crown jewels and show you what we're seeing out there in foreign space so you can better defend yourself going forward. Uh, there are ways to do this. Uh, the government hasn't quite gotten to those over its own hurdles about sharing that with industry on lower scale at speed and at, you know, in real time. All right. Quick uh, uh, question. Is the, the story in The Intercept where they point to a whole bunch of uh, big – uh, windowless uh, high-rises in major cities, um, which house a bunch of internet routing uh, uh, um, uh, structures um, and also are alleged to be where NSA pulls off uh, certain kinds of lawfully authorized uh, uh, intercepts. Is there any reason to wade through that endless story, Tamil? I mean, look, we, we, the, the government has made clear uh, that there are lawful authorities that it utilizes uh, to conduct surveillance in the United States against foreigners located overseas. It's called Section 702. We've had three debates over it. It's been reauthorized every time, sometimes with minor changes. Um, there's a variety of other pieces of legislation that have authorized government surveillance collections. So the methods by which the government does that, the specific facilities it may do it at, uh, the ways in which it carries it out, I mean... It, strikes me as, you know, stuff that goes beyond um, sort of maybe there's a pure, pure interest of some folks who read The Intercept and that sort of information. Um, but at the end of the day, the government's been very clear. Yes, we collect foreign intelligence on American soil uh, through court orders directed at telecommunications companies, uh, both uh, both on the, on the on upstream, as they say, on the backbone and um, and at the endpoint uh, or, at, or at providers uh, through court orders. The government's been public about that since the snow of the leaks. Uh, there have been lots of information revealed by the government where specifically it takes place and how it's done. You know, I think the government likes to maintain that as secret. So, you know, I mean, if the Intercept wants to talk about what they think the answers are, I mean, I guess I suppose they're, you know, they can do that and they can use classified information to do that. It is, it is unfortunate and inappropriate um, if, in fact, that's what they're doing, if, in fact, this is true. Um, but, you know, look, at the end of the day, um, you know, if this is a question about law and policy, I think the law and policy has been debated and, the intercepted law. Yeah. I, and meanwhile, they're going to cover 83 of the last two surveillance scandals. Um, okay. Uh, last uh, uh, point. Uh, um, Maury, I, uh, the Pew Foundation came out with a uh, study of Americans' attitude toward big social media. And I was kind of surprised, uh, uh, not at the views, which I share, but at how many people share them. 72% of Americans think that the uh, uh, that big social media uh, uh, censors uh, views that they find objectionable. And that turns out to be almost all people, even, even Democrats think that uh, uh, social media censors uh, the right, not the left. Uh, and Something like 60% of Republicans thought that social media needed more regulation. Uh, th th these are surprising numbers and scary if you live in the Silicon Valley. Yeah, I was trying to think, uh, well, thinking about the Republican points of view, I was trying to think what Maxim applies best here is, is whether you can't have your cake and eat it too, or if you want to listen to the music, you got to pay the piper. Uh, the evidence seems to suggest that right-wing voters are more easily swayed with social media. But I think it's undeniable that all media tend, media companies tend to be left-leaning, and there probably is some censorship out there. Um, you got to decide on which side of the fence you sit. I, like you, come down on the free speech side of the fence. 
Yeah. Uh, well, uh, we'll see. I, I, I tend to think that those studies that show that the, the people on the right are more swayed by uh, uh, social media were designed by people who think that uh, people on the right are stupid and were eager to prove it. Uh, but I could be wrong. Uh, all right. Uh, let's move on to our interview uh, uh, with Duncan Hollis uh, because it combines two things that I uh, have a wonkish delight in uh, cybersecurity, which everybody who listens to this podcast probably has, and the Proliferation Security Initiative, which uh, probably only four people who listen to this podcast uh, know something about. Uh, um, uh, Duncan and uh, Matt Waxman have written a paper that says combining those two is exactly what we should be doing. Um, uh, and I thought, Duncan, uh, can you give us the... Uh, the elevator speech for your paper? Sure. Um, I think to begin with, we're kind of, Matt and I started in this idea that, you know, we're in this world now where the global efforts to regulate state behavior in cyberspace are either failing or at risk of being led by the likes of Russia and China. And so we were kind of looking at what would be a good plurilateral method of, of cooperation among states. And that's where the PSI, I think, set up about 15 years ago now, stands out. It's a relatively unique architecture for cooperation that we think could benefit cybersecurity. Now, I should be clear at the outset, although the Proliferation Security Initiative, or PSI, focuses on nonproliferation, Matt and my interest uh, in PSI is not in treating cybersecurity like cyber weapons or like nuclear uh, nonproliferation. Our interest was in the architecture, where you basically have like-minded states via political commitment agreeing to cooperate, not necessarily collectively, but through coordinated actions uh, with people or states of different capacities. And um, we were kind of just interested in thinking about how that architecture has certain features that might work for cybersecurity as it exists today, particularly with all the problems at a global level. So it's potluck policymaking in a sense. People bring what they have to the table and say, "This this much I'm willing to put into the uh, into the effort to to make a meal." Um, and when you're done, you actually you know you do have a fair amount of nourishment. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, if if I can continue that, I mean, it's the idea that you might have uh, more than one chef in the kitchen, and some chefs are going to actually be really good at certain things, right? Somebody might have some great knife skills. Somebody uh, might be really good at doing the dishes. And I think one of the things that PSI focused on was having almost tiered participation. So we can talk a little bit more about what PSI is. But one of the core features of it was that there were a group of states, appropriately known as the core group. Uh, those with the capacity and information on nonproliferation risks and the capacity to do interdiction, and then a group of kind of a supporting cast, if you will, that would on a case-by-case basis lend uh, either assistance or just their voice of, yes, we support this activity and this behavior. Um, and, you know, you could think about that uh, in terms of parallels, in terms of what states and I guess industry and even individual users can bring to a table uh, when you're dealing with cybersecurity threats. And so that, that, you know, it's, it's designed, as you say, kind of to be a little bit potluck, bring, bring what you can to the table. Uh, and as long as everybody contributes, you hopefully the end product is a good one. So I, I don't think we should go too far, uh, further down the PSI, uh, road without noting who the architect of this was. It was John Bolton, who's back in the news again. Uh, it does lead me to ask, is there like a position for um, uh, international law professor in residence at the National Security Council that you might be uh, – uh, you or Matt is, is hoping to get? 
I, I can't speak for Matt. I, I think I, I'll say I'm, I'm pretty happy as a, <laughs> as a law professor in the private sector and doing some consulting and the like. Um, it, it did not escape our um, – we, we actually started working, I should be clear, on this paper uh, more than a year ago. But yes, it did not uh, escape – are thinking that this was in the current White House, uh, the sort of thing, and, and in the current geopolitical environment where, you know, some things the U.S. is going to float, others are going to say absolutely not to, um, and similarly things that, you know, are getting floated in Europe or by other stakeholders are also going to meet resistance from the U.S., was this uh, this model might be something where you could hopefully find some, some common ground. Um, and that, you know, I, I certainly think uh, – Mr. Bolton has experience with PSI. He did play a critical role in it, and so um, he may know as well as anyone uh, what sort of legs it might have on so, global cybersecurity. So let me let me. I I actually wrote about this when I was trying to figure out what Bolton might be like as national security uh, advisor, and everybody's saying, "Oh my God, you know, uh, get your children into a fallout shelter right away." I uh, and um, I said. You know, he's very critical of a lot of uh, um, international policymaking for good reason. There are a lot of flaws with the way we made policy. But his critique of nonproliferation was it's not really enforceable. Uh, uh, people drag us into endless negotiations over, uh, you know, how much we're going to bribe the less developed countries with uh, uh, in terms of uh, funds and expertise. Uh, um, we've got all these people who want it, the whole enterprise to fail, who are dragged along. And then uh, I don't know if he made this objection, but I do. Uh, any organization you create has, that has a secretariat, immediately the secretariat defines the United States as its natural enemy. Um, and so it too tries to get in the way of U.S. initiatives or at least tweak them um, and slow them down and demonstrate its value to all the other members by making sure that they are not uh, pushed too hard by the U.S. into a particular direction. So if you can come up with something informal and fast-moving and uh, agile and without a secretariat, um, you have a chance to make policy much more effective and much more likely to be something that the U.S. government supports. I, I, I think – I might I might disagree with you on some of the means, but probably agree with you on the end, right? I, I as a professor of international law, you'll not be surprised that I'm probably not as negative as Mr. Bolton on uh, the non-proliferation uh, legal regime. I, you know, I tend to think of it kind of like speed limits; it doesn't stop speeding, but you know, it may have braked, uh, had had put some brakes on some things that might have otherwise happened. That said, I think what Matt Waxman and I were thinking about with this piece was again this idea that. What can you do that has low entry costs? And that's one of the features I think that the PSI has and that you could think about as a model for cybersecurity is, you know, it doesn't – PSI is not based on a treaty. It's based on this uh, statement of interdiction principles, which is a couple-page document that's like a political commitment. Nobody expects that, you know, states who sign on to the statement of interdiction principles need to go through their treaty-making process. They don't need to change their national laws. Again, you're kind of taking the states as you find them. So states can join pretty easily and it can be put together, and it was put together pretty easily. You started the um, PSI, I think, started with 11 states in 2003, and today it's about 105 states have signed on to those interdiction principles. And so I do think that this kind of uh, voluntary, kind of low entry cost model without a secretariat, without having to get into um, some organization that's going to require budgetary support, 
um, is going to be more feasible, at least as in terms of where we are right now. So let's think about what this would mean in cybersecurity, some examples. So it, when you're talking about getting everybody to agree on some principles, or at least not everybody, you, you can you can push aside people that you think will never agree and then try to get uh, others to agree, uh, agreeing with the Europeans and, and perhaps other states, India, uh, Brazil, that certain kinds of cyber espionage or cyber attacks uh, – uh, are inappropriate, that uh, uh, we ought to cooperate in stopping uh, denial of service attacks uh, uh, and setting up rapid reaction um, uh, systems for taking down compromised DDoSing uh, 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 security cameras, for example. Uh, that's a, that's a, uh, something that could be done uh, and we could try it out to see how it works. And if it doesn't work well the first time, uh, I recommend that people change their uh, um, uh, laws to allow them to move more quickly against uh, compromised machines that are attacking uh, other people. Uh, and you use the the weight of the economies that are in the boat to uh, lean on people who haven't gotten in yet uh, and to say you need to change your law to Thailand or Vietnam because everybody else is doing it. Uh, all of those are, are PSI-like moves in cybersecurity, right? Yeah, I think they are. I think um, if you go back to PSI, I think one of the, the original motivations for it was there was this incident in 2002 uh, the, this North Korean freighter, I think it was the Sosan, it was called. Um, you know, it gets detained by Spanish Marines. They find 15 Scud missiles on board, um, and you know, I, I didn't work on it, but I was at the State Department at the time. And uh, you know, there was a lot of anxiety. Is you know, is could the vessel be held, or did you have to let it proceed on um, to Yemen? I think it was where it was destined for. And they, you know, the eventually the decision was under the existing international law rules. The vessel was allowed freedom of the high seas, the vessel freedom of navigation, the vessel was allowed to continue on to its destination. And I think that was the impetus for uh, PSI. And it certainly was this idea that well, let's let's try out and maybe think about whether we could get to new rules. I think one of the ironies uh, of of PSI was that it didn't actually change, you know, international maritime law or international aviation law. What I think happened was as states began to cooperate in this kind of uh, ad hoc coalition uh, voluntary participation is they found that there was actually a lot of strength in their existing national laws, um, in the ability that if your national law didn't actually provide authority, maybe just by your consent, you know, the executive uh, of certain countries could say, yeah, we're willing to allow your uh, customs officials to do an investigation in our territory or we'll do um, – they did a number of, I think, uh, call them shiprider agreements where um, certain countries would allow other countries' forces onto their ships and they do these joint operations together all by consent. And so, again, Matt Waxman and I were thinking, you know, there's there's a lot of utility for that given the nature of the cybersecurity threat problem, which is inherently global, was that, you know, the jurisdictional limits as strong as U.S. law enforcement might be within U.S. territory um, and their efforts to act extraterritorially, you know, you, there are plenty of instances where you need cooperation from other states either their consent to operate in their territory or getting them to put their own national laws to work. Um, and you can you can move forward uh, on that. And as you said, um, as states realize, hey, you know, our national law is not as strong as, as it needs to be, you could see a process where through that national uh, level measures, you could see changes uh, that improve things. Yeah. And, and there were probably a 
dozen um, uh, flags of con- flag of convenience uh, uh, countries who were not the, the strongest uh, economically or militarily or uh, any other way. This was an important source of uh, income for them. Uh, and the U.S. and the other members were able to lean on them to, to say, yeah, sure, you want to board my ships, go right ahead. Well, that, that solved the problem without ever having to change the freedom of navigation principles. Right. I think that's right. And I mean, we should also emphasize that, you know, the PSI is, is not universal. It's 105 states. There's um, some, you know, 80 plus states that are not in it. And I, you know, I'd imagine you might see something similar if you, this were tried out in cybersecurity. Um, you know, Russia, for example, objects to the Budapest Cybercrime Convention precisely because it thinks it's too intrusive in terms of the, the pre-commitments states make to allow uh, law enforcement investigations in, in the territory of state parties. So, you know, I, I do think that this is not going to be a global solution. Um, what, what we were thinking about in, in this paper was, in, a, in an imperfect world, what could a plurilateral solution, right? Where could you get, um, you know, the U.S., the Europeans, uh, the Singapore's, Japan's, uh, some of the OAS states to, to coalesce around a certain set of, uh, of principles and then act on them? I mean, I think that's the other thing that we were really interested in was, you know, the PSI is not a, a talk shop, right? It doesn't – because as you said, it doesn't have a secretariat. It doesn't have, you know, global meetings that are, you know uh, – with observers and civil society participation, it just does stuff or it's, you know, stuff is done in its name. Um, and we both, I think, uh, uh, thought, you know, the time is to try and do, um, not to undermine the talking that's been going on. I think there's a utility to it, but we might also want to see some more experimentation and some more, you know, action, uh, as it were. So uh, when you write the next paper, you should say, what does the financial action task force, uh, tell us about, possible cyber security solutions, because that's a similar kind of potluck, uh, um, informal, agile, international policymaking effort led by the United States uh, uh, that has had enormous impact. Uh, so I'm looking forward to that uh, that next install, installment of your uh, international policy guide to cybersecurity. Yeah, with, you know, I, I love we, we've been working our way through all the analogies over the years, Stuart. So, I mean, I, I think, right, the next one is the FATF uh, paper and then we'll keep we'll keep going. I mean, look, all analogies have limits, um, but I do think that this kind of uh, a sense of a political commitment with kind of tiered participation, uh, like minded. And as you point out, I think one of the strengths of the FATF has been that it built out norms. I'm, I'm not I'm not as sure that PSI did. I think PSI was much more about. Uh, you know, the cooperation and getting the consent and leveraging national laws. Um, whereas I think FATF is, is most known for getting a group of like-minded states to cooperate around their 40 whatever plus recommendations uh, of, you know, best practices that states should take. And, and certainly there's, there's nothing inconsistent with that model for what Matt and I have been writing about. So before you go, I do want to ask, do you have any public events coming up where you're going to be talking about this that the listeners might want to go to? So, um, public events wise, not so much. I, I am a member of the OAS juridical committee, uh, which is this kind of the, it's like the equivalent of the international law commission at the UN. This is the juridical committee for the, um, the organization of American States and, and uh, there's 11 of us. And one of the things we've been trying to think about, um, is the cybersecurity problem. Uh, and the OAS has already done a, a tremendous amount in terms of building out cybersecurity strategies and helping countries, uh, do that sort of work. But one of the things we're interested in is getting more transparency on what the norms are or, or what the international law is and, and what do states, you know, understand the rules are. So, um, you know, a few years ago, Harold Coe, more recently, Brian Egan, 
you know, a State Department legal advisor kind of came out with these public, public statements um, articulating, you know, here's what we think, uh, you know, use of force means for cyber security, or here's what we think the international humanitarian law or non-intervention means. And uh, so I, one of the things I've been working with the committee on is whether we could try and um, get other OAS member states to kind of come forward with similar statements again to kind of try, try and build um, out what the, the rules of the road here are. Because I think if there's a difference between, say, the, the PSI model and what we've been writing about is, you know, the PSI you, you and I might disagree on the utility of the rules, but there was there was no existential crisis. Everybody agreed there were certain treaties, and the treaties said certain things. You know, and the it, the the fight was over what they meant, right? Like, you know, how do you interpret these things? And I, I think in cybersecurity, we we do have existential uh, fights. You know, you see the fight over whether is sovereignty a rule that states violate by their cyber cyber operations or not. Um, you know, the UK Attorney General a few weeks ago seemed to suggest it's not a rule. Uh, the Tallinn manual says it is, you know, that's, that's something that needs to be worked through. And so, um, I, I'll flag that something that the OAS I'm hoping will work on. I, I should also confess that I, I've been working with Microsoft, um, uh, advising them on some of their international, uh, legal proposals, particularly relating to the digital Geneva convention. Oh, um, God, really tell them to give it up. <laughs> that is the dumbest <laughs> idea. Know, that is the dumbest idea to make its appearance in the international policy discussions in a decade. So, uh, <laughs> so I, I do think that the tech accord, which is a direct product of that might, might bear fruit yet. I mean, I, I don't know what you think of, but I mean, well, I think, you know, the, the, the story of that was, you know, you have the speech and, and, and the proposal and then the call. Well, if you're going to, you know, if you're going to ask states to do something, you should do something first. And, you know, the, the, there is this tech accord out there now. Um, and there may be there may be other uh, other moves. I do, um, you know, I think uh, I'd at least say the verdict is not yet out, but uh, I, I know we'd probably uh, have to agree to disagree on that one. Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, Brad Smith, you are invited to come on this program and defend this, the, you know, godforsaken idea anytime you want. Uh, um, so pass that on to Brad. Uh, uh, Duncan Hollis, thank you so much. This is terrific. Uh, uh, thanks also to Maury Schenk, uh, Chris Conti, Jamil Jaffer, and Laura Hillsman for joining me. This has been episode 224 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Uh, before we go, I, I should say, if you've got guest interviews to suggest, uh, uh, send your uh, uh, nomination to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com and we'll send you a highly coveted Cyberlaw podcast mug uh, if your uh, suggested interviewee uh, comes on the show. Uh, Duncan, if Brad Smith comes on, I'll send you the mug. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, if you want to hear your voice on the show because you've got something that only uh, uh, makes sense if people hear it, you can leave a message at 202-862-5785. Don't forget to look for my Twitter feed or whatever I've got on LinkedIn or Facebook. Uh, I'm at Stuart Baker on Twitter. Uh, I will be uh, test driving some of these uh, stories uh, during the week to see if there's interest in particular stories. Uh, uh, and uh, please rate our show. Uh, um, give us reviews. Uh, I promise to read the most entertaining uh, recent reviews, uh, but I didn't see any that were all that entertaining. So uh, please... Um, uh, say something uh, novel uh, in uh, the iTunes review, the Google Play review, whatever your favorite podcast aggregator may be. Uh, upcoming guest interviews, we've got Michael Hayden, 
uh, who's written a book, uh, another book, uh, this one uh, about uh, intelligence in the age of Trump. Uh, he's not a Trump fan. Uh, Bobby Chesney and Danielle Citrone are going to come in, come on and talk about deep fakes. And uh, uh, I want to thank Dune, the Doonesbury uh, 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 Sunday Comics for uh, illustrating exactly how important deep fakes will be to our modern political culture. You have, you're going to have to go find Doonesbury from last Sunday to uh, figure that that reference out. Uh, we're trying to get Woody Hartzog uh, from Northeastern uh, on to talk about his book, which I probably disagree with. Noah Phillips, FTC commissioner uh, with a particular interest in privacy, is going to be coming on just before we go on uh, our hiatus. So plenty uh, uh, of stuff happening uh, just in the next uh, month, uh, and we hope you'll join us uh, for those and other episodes as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs> <laughs>